If you would, take your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 27. Psalm chapter 27. While you're turning, if you were here last week, you know we had the, the pulpit swap and I was at Redeemer and Ryan Limbaugh was here and I'm thankful for him, glad he was here. Uh, he kind of joked, I think, I was told about taking the pulpit. Don't worry, he didn't sneak in under the cover of darkness and steal it. Uh, it's sitting over here. We have a, a glorious event this afternoon at 3 o'clock. Anna Lee and Bob are going to be married here, and so the stage is being prepared for all of that. And, and we're thankful to uh, have that happening. And it's just such a good thing that we can be a part of this afternoon. So Ryan, don't call Ryan and tell him to return to pulpit. It's here. Psalm 27. I just have a question that will guide us as we look at this passage. And the question is a very personal and specific question. And it's one that you might not want to answer. And the question is this. It's very simple. Are you seeking God's presence? Are you seeking God's presence? Because see, Psalm 27 is all about seeking God's presence. Let's look at the passage together and read along. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Now, at this point in the text, there's a great break of attitude, but not a break of content. Some would say these are two psalms that were put together. I don't agree with that at all. This is one psalm written by one author, David, and there is a shift, but I want you to notice the content stays the same. He goes from, in the first part, an extreme confidence into the second part, a prayer based on that confidence. That's the shift. That's the only shift. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, this is his prayer, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O oh, God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O oh Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. 
Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. One of the saddest realities in our world today is the absence of parents in the lives of children. Especially fathers. We all know the power of presence in the life of a child. If you think about it, uh, it, it's true in your life. I'm sure it is because it's, it's true in my life. You know, and I've told my story before, and I don't want to go through the whole thing, but I do want to say one of the biggest marks in my life, one of the biggest things that I suffered from early and still today struggle with at times was the fact that my father abandoned our family. When a father makes the choice to leave, it always leaves wounds and tracks in the life of his children. That's happening at an astounding rate in our day. Worse than that, we now have a whole segment of society which is being born into single parent homes to young moms. And we see the devastation of it. The lack of presence. But that's not the only way we abandon children, is it? Some of us abandon our children while we pursue other things. Hobbies. Work. Other relationships. Presence of our parents is being robbed every day. And I know I can be guilty of it, as guilty as any of you. So if you feel bad, trust me, I feel bad about it too. Presence can be robbed from the children because of the technology in our pockets. Right? We have that time with our children. They're right there with us. And rather than spending time with them, we pull out and look at Facebook or Twitter or our favorite sports team's page or whatever. What's being communicated in that moment is not silent to that child. What they're hearing in that moment is, that thing is more important than me. A lack of presence has a great impact on children. But there are good things to be remembered about this too. My father, my, my father who adopted me, um, whenever I played a sporting event, would come to the ball field, and for me and for my brother. My dad was a farmer, and he worked long and late hours. But I never will forget the Friday nights when I came out of the, the, the uh, locker room to go on the field. It was never a fail that my dad, dirty, nasty, greasy, dusty, would be sitting on the tailgate of his truck behind the fence, usually drinking a little Coke or eating a little snack to get through because he hadn't even had supper yet, and he was at my game. He was there. And no matter what, I knew he was there. So you can have the power of presence in a bad way or the power of presence in a good way. And I want us to notice in the psalm, David has experienced the power of presence in both good and bad, hasn't he? He says, God has commanded me to seek his face and I will seek his face. And he's calling on God with this great confidence that God will hear him and be there. But if you've been abandoned, if you've suffered through abandonment, in verse 10, David speaks to you. My mother and father abandoned me, but God will not forsake me. 
the Lord will take me in. So David writes in this psalm about the presence of God in his life. It may be that you didn't have your parents. It may be that you had your parents only partially because they weren't very present even though they were in your home. It could be that you haven't really ever experienced the presence of God. This psalm speaks to all of that in a powerful way. Let's look at it together in several parts. First of all, we can depend on God's presence. In verses 1 through 3, we see that we people of God can depend on God's presence. Look how he describes God. He says, God is my light. God is my light. We're, we're, this is the only Old Testament text where God is defined as light. Now other times he says that God shines light on certain things in his life. The Psalms will often comment about God's light illumining things or making things clear, but never calling God light. This is a rare opportunity for us to see a window into the new covenant, in the old covenant. David calls God light. He says, my God is my light. Light speaks to wisdom. Light speaks to understanding. Light speaks to illumination over the life of the person. In this text, I believe that's exactly what David's saying. God is my light. In other words, He understands where I'm at. He knows me, and He's wise beyond me to know where I'm going in life. But in the Old Covenant, it's only mentioned one time, but hold your place here and look at some of the places in the New Testament. In John chapter 1, we see that the Lord is defined as light. If John chapter 1, verses 5 and then verse 9, or it says, or 4 and 5 and then verse 9. In verse 4, John says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So the eternal life, the God life of Jesus was the light of men. And the light came into the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome the light. So in this text, we see something further about the light of God, that it's powerful. That it's able to overcome the darkness or the confusion of life. Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He's speaking of Jesus Christ, isn't he? Now David says, the Lord is my light. And I believe he gives us a peek into the fact that Jesus is the light of our life. The Lord is the light of our life. 1 John, 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 says, God is light. That's, that's, that's a definition there. So God is, or the Lord is, our light. He's secondly, our salvation. God is our salvation. Salvation speaks to deliverance in this text. And so we have the light delivering us. Whom shall I fear? Thirdly, he describes God as a stronghold or a mighty tower. Proverbs 18 verse 10 also speaks of God as a stronghold, a mighty tower that we run into and we are safe from our enemies. So David is telling us the same thing here in verse 1. The Lord is my light. He's my understanding. He's my wisdom. He delivers me and He protects me. He shelters me. But listen, what God said in part in this Old Covenant passage, He says completely to us in one passage in the New Testament. If you're here today and you say, I, I want that. I want God's understanding in my life. I want to be delivered from my enemies. I want to be free from sin. I want to be free of these habits. I want God's presence as protection. There's hope for you. 
There's hope for you. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In this one text, all three of these ideas that we've just read about in verse 1 are contained speaking about, again, our Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, In their case, talking about those who are unbelieving, in their case, God, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's kept them from understanding. To keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The hope of the first verse of Psalm 27.1 is realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You're looking for understanding? You're looking for the presence of God. You're looking for deliverance from your enemies. You're looking for protection from all the struggles and trials of this world. It'll be found in one person. Jesus Christ. It's in that person that God has made the light of His gospel shine forth. Are you seeking the presence of God today? Are you looking for it? Do you feel like you don't have it in your life? They can only be found really in one person, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see here that we can depend on God's presence. Secondly, we can know God's presence. We can know it. We can in, 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 intrinsically, we can know that God is near. How? Verses 4 through 6. First of all, David is straining for us to understand God's presence. He wants us to understand God's presence. Look at verses 4 through 6. How many ways he describes the house of the Lord. In verse 4 he says, I may dwell, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon his beauty in his temple. I'll remind you, there's no, at this point there's no Solomon's temple, right? This is prior to the physical building of the temple. So he's speaking about the tabernacle. He calls it a house of the Lord. He calls it a temple of the Lord. Verse 5, For He will hide me in His dwelling place or in His shelter. So God will hide David in His shelter. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent or His tabernacle. So He's straining to say that the presence of God is made real to me in the tabernacle of God in David's day. It's interesting, the Jewish people put a lot of, of their experience in physical worship. That's very opposite from us today. Most people discredit physical worship and say that's not really what's important. It doesn't really matter if I go to church. It doesn't really matter if I take the sacraments. It doesn't really matter if I join and sing and pray publicly. All that matters is what I do in my secret time with me and God in my house. That's all that matters. It's me and God and everybody else is outside. But the Jews were just the opposite. The Jews said the presence of God can be found in His tabernacle. The presence of God can be found in the gathering of God's people to this place of worship. To do physical acts of worship, both prayer and singing and preaching. We know that they exposited the Scriptures even in their day. And then we know that they, they had sacrifices, physical sacrifices that were going on. And it's it's... 
kind of understandable, right? Why we've moved from this physical only or almost physical only to this spiritual act of worship. Because John chapter 4, Jesus says there comes a day and it's here when you will not seek to worship God on your mountain or on our mountain, but every person will worship God in what? Spirit and truth. And so we take verses like that and we say, well, it doesn't really matter if I go to church because I can worship God on the golf course. I can worship God in the woods. I can worship God at, at home in my bed with just me and some praise music. But that's going further than what Jesus was talking about. That's going further than what the Bible instructs of us. C.S. Lewis probably captures the thoughts of these verses better than anybody I read this week. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, if the Jews overthought public worship, we have underthought. And we have disregarded what they held as sacred. And that's the truth. Look what David's saying in this text. He says, I, I, know, I know the presence of God when I draw near to Him. And how do I draw near to Him? I come into His house. I come into His dwelling place. I come into His tabernacle. And when I go there, I don't just go and see these structures in front of me, but I go and see what? What does the text say? What do I see? The beauty of the Lord. I gaze upon the beauty of of the Lord. So David is straining for us to understand that the presence of God is near. Even in the Old Covenant, they understood the presence of God to be near. And they understood it to be in a physical place at that time. David's hope was only ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ again. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And he, the Word became flesh and tabernacled with us, and we beheld the glory of God, the glory as of, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So what John's saying is, we beheld the beauty of the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ. David said it in his way, in his day, I beheld God's beauty in the tabernacle. Jesus took all of that and put it in himself. He became literally the tabernacle of God in John chapter 2. Later, just, just one chapter over from John 1. Jesus goes into the temple and He cleans house. And as He's leaving out, the leaders say, who gives you the right to do what you just did? Who says you have the authority? Show us a sign. Jesus says, what? Tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And they said, you'll tear down this temple that we've been building for 46 years and build it in three days? They scoffed at Him. But what was He referring to? John says he was referring, and we only understood what he was referring to after his resurrection because he was referring to the temple of his body. You see, the Old Testament presence of God was found in this physical tabernacle, and then it came to us even more intimately in the person of Jesus Christ. But that's not all. Listen, God's people have always looked for God's presence. This goes all the way back to Genesis. I want you to think about it. We're going to do a little quick tour through history. Where do we see God's presence first? Where's the first place we see it? Yes, Eric, in the Garden of Eden. God was with Adam in the Garden of Eden, wasn't He? The presence of God was found in the Garden. How do we know that? Because in the cool of the day, God came and walked with Adam and talked to him as a man talks to a friend. God's presence was with His people in the Garden. What happened? Man sinned. And God puts out on the east side of the gate, he puts out cherubim to guard the gate, and he says, You shall, and with flaming sword says, You shall not come forth from this place anymore. You can't go back in because of your sin. But he immediately begins an act of worship 
that will help them draw near to his presence. What is that act of worship? Sacrifice. Altars became the presence of God. They sacrificed animals. How do we know that? Because God did it first, right? When Adam sinned, God offered an animal, I believe a lamb, clothed them and Eve in it, and put them out of the garden. But they knew that altar was a place to worship God. How do we know they were to continue in that? Because their sons were born, right? Cain and Abel. And what happened? Abel offered God a more perfect sacrifice. Why? Because his heart attitude was to be in the presence of God, to worship God the way God prescribed in God's place. What was Cain's attitude? I'm going to do something good that God will have to recognize me for. And then he became angry at his brother and he killed his brother. So God had given them a place to worship. It was an altar. It was a simple altar. But that didn't stop. That continued all the way into Noah's day, didn't it? We see it in Noah's life. When he got off the ark, what's the first thing he did? He built an altar and he worshipped God. He was looking for the presence of God, wasn't he? Men have always been looking for the presence of God. It was written into our very DNA to look for something to worship. And we started in the garden and we messed it up with our sin. But God gave it to us in sacrifices and so that continued. But it didn't end there, did it? God became more specific with us, didn't he? When? When the people were in the desert, God gave them a plan to build a tabernacle that would image for them the tabernacle of heaven. God's presence was near to Israel in the tabernacle, in the tent of meeting. That's where God came. The cloud of God's Shekinah glory came and sat down on the Holy of Holies. And they knew that Moses was meeting with God because it shone even from the face of Moses. So much so they said, put a veil over your face. We can't stand to look at you. But he was in the presence of God. The presence of God was near to the people in the tabernacle. And that continued through David's day into Solomon's day when they built the first brick and mortar building, so to speak, the temple of Solomon. And then that housed the glory of God or the presence of God. And then they were exiled because of their sin. But they continued to seek for the presence of God. And when did it come again? In the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt with us tabernacled with us. Jesus said, if you tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. You can't tear down this temple. We've been building this 46 years. You can't do it in three days. But what they didn't understand was he was talking about the temple of his body. God's presence has always been made known to God's people, whether it was the garden or the altars from the garden to Moses' day or from Moses' day in the tabernacle till Solomon's day when they built the temple. And from Solomon's day and throughout all the exiles, they looked for the presence of God and they found it in Jesus. But that's not the end of the story. We can seek and get the beauty of God in Jesus and then 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says something very astounding about you and I as people of God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is a unique passage because it takes what was given to Jesus and then it diffuses it into all of Jesus' people. It's a beautiful thing. The presence of God was contained in the garden, at the altars, in the tabernacle, at the temple, and then finally in Jesus. And from Jesus, it is diffused into all of His people. When? At Pentecost, when the Spirit fell, it came and dwelt in every single believer on that day. Isn't that beautiful? And Acts tells us it went not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And now Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, look what he says. Do not be unequally yoked, verse 14, with unbelievers. We misuse that text all the time. We talk about it only in the, text, in the context of marriage. That's not even what Paul's talking about here. 
He's talking about in any relationship. We're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? For, uh, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You see what he did? He called the people of God the temple of God. We can know the presence of God today because Jesus has brought that presence to us and now the Spirit lives in us. We no longer have to go to a building like the temple to have the presence of God. It's near to us for we are the temple of the living God. God promised a temple and He has delivered. That temple is His church. And it is diffused among the lively living stones of the church and all those who believe all over the world today. And so we know that we can know the presence of God. The presence of God can be trusted because God is our understanding of how to be delivered from our sin and protected from all the destruction sin brings in the person of Jesus Christ. We can know that's true because Jesus came and now He has taken the temple concept and put it into the lives of the church because the presence of God now dwells in us. So my question still stands. Are you seeking the presence of God? Are you still looking for God's presence? Do you still not know where it can be found? Third, in this passage, we can call on God's presence. Verses 7 through 10 is a whole prayer of David basically saying, I'm calling on God to have His presence. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says in prayer, your face, Lord, do I seek. And then he calls on God to turn to him, to hide not his face from him. Don't cast me away. Keep your presence. Keep me in your presence, O God of my salvation. Everyone else, even my father and mother have left me, but God won't leave me. That kind of confidence is called on by David. He's calling on God's presence in his life. And finally, in this passage, we see that we can have confidence in God's presence. We can have confidence in God's presence. Look what he does in verse 11. He, in the prayer, says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Now here, David, obviously in this psalm, is talking about physical enemies, but it applies to us spiritually. We don't have physical armies amassing themselves around Grace Fellowship ready to shoot us down at any beck and call. We're not here like a stronghold saying, God, protect me from my enemies out there. But every day, in every way in our lives, enemies are assaulting us, aren't they? Enemies are assaulting us. Where do they come from? Internally. My greatest enemy is not out there, it's in here. It's me. It's my old body of sin that keeps wanting to rule and have dominion over me, right? It's that opportunity to sin that is the enemy I need deliverance from. So what is the solution? I'm seeking God's presence. I want to know God's presence. Then I have to be taught how to have God's presence. Teach me your ways, oh God. Lead my feet on level paths so that I won't fall to my enemy. That's what we all need, isn't it? That's what we need. In chapter 25 of Psalm, in 26, both Psalms talked about the need to know the way of God. The ruts of the life of David were were cut in by the Spirit of God working by 
placing him in the path that he knew he needed to be in, in the commandments and the teachings of the Word of God. And so that delivered him from his enemies. We can have confidence in God's presence. Notice the confidence. If you think about a battle scene, how many great generals do you think have said to their soldiers, just wait? I mean, when we think about war, we think about blood, guts, and all the fury, right? But sometimes the greatest act of war is to wait for your enemy. Many times in history this has been the case. Right? An, an, an approaching army's coming, and what do they tell them? Hold the line. Hold the line. Don't fire. Don't shoot a shot. Why? Till you see the whites of their eyes. Wait. In other words, wait. And then they trusted the leader, and they, they fired, and they win the battle, Right? And it's no different in our life. Often we're not willing to wait to find the presence of God in Christ. Oh, we want to find the presence of God in many other things. We want to find the presence of God or the deliverance from our troubles from other sources. But David says, I have confidence in God's presence. I'm going to wait. Until God acts, I'm not doing anything. Until God delivers me, I won't be delivered. Remember in our reading that Dave laid out for us, Charnock wrote that it wasn't until the Israelites were where? Against the Red Sea that God delivered them. And it wasn't until the three children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were in the fiery furnace that God actually delivered them. And it wasn't until Daniel was thrown into the lion's den that God shut the mouths of the lions. Some of us are so impatient, God is ready to act, but we're running ahead. We're solving our own problem. We want our own solutions. And God's simply saying, wait, have confidence in my presence. I will deliver you. I will act on your behalf. My power is sufficient. And so we see in this psalm that God, God's presence is near to David. He knows this presence. He calls on the presence of God and he waits patiently. He waits patiently. And I can't give you, that's the tough part of the Christian walk. I can't give you the end date. I can't say, well, at this time, at this place, God's going to deliver you from that thing that you're struggling most with. I can't do that. But that's where confidence comes in. I think about my life, and I, I think about my shortcoming. And as I close, I just want to share with you quickly a personal account of waiting on the Lord. You know, uh, many of you were here when, uh, when our family was going through some very difficult times, uh, our, our daughter was diagnosed with a terrible genetic disorder, was dying, was going to die at birth. And I remember in those days that uh, I would pray. I would get up, and I couldn't really sleep. I would get up, and I would get my Bible, and I would read, and I would just pray. And I pleaded with the Lord, pleaded and begged that He would do a miracle, and that He would take the defect and he would just change it and he would save her and that she'd be born and she'd be healthy and the doctors would be amazed in my mind this was the way God could show his power is that he could just heal her right there and so all this time was spent praying all this time was spent seeking God's face all this time was spent asking God to do what I thought was right and good and which display his power the best and then we got the word that she was going to be born. And we went into the hospital and we went through, Amy went through labor and she was born. 
and she had the defect. She could barely breathe. She struggled and struggled with life, and she lived a lifetime in nine minutes and died. And holding her dead body, looking into that little face, I knew God's presence. It wasn't because she lived that I knew God's presence. It was because she died. What I'm telling you is when you see God's presence, you never know how that presence will come. But I promise you, it will come. Wait on the Lord. Do not give up. Call on Him. The reason I saw that death as a, a giving of God's presence to me was not because I went the whole uh, eight months of pregnancy uh, confident in God's deliverance of this thing and just living my life. The reason I saw the presence of God in that event was because I had prayed and I'd spent night after night pleading with God to act for me and for my family and for my little girl. Had I not done that, I'm confident when that day came, I would not have been prepared and I would have turned into a mush and a mess. Uh, that night, there was many people there um, and uh, we, 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 they all left. And there was, there was one guy, one guy. Everybody else had things they had to do. It was very understandable. People were given a space. There was one guy. I didn't know he was going to be here when I'm playing the story, so it's kind of awkward. But there's one guy, Seth Terrell, sat outside the double doors. And he just sat there. And I went out to him and I said, man, it, you know, we cried together some. And he looked at me and he said, hey, man, don't worry about me. You go back in there, but I'll be right here if you want to talk. Just, I'll be right here. And in that moment, it was like God was saying, I'm here. Seth's not God. But Seth represented for me that night the presence of God. He spoke with me. He taught me. He comforted me. He loved me. He served me in ways that I'll never forget. So in that one moment, Psalm 27, as I was thinking about this text, it just came to life for me in that event of my life. I pleaded with God for His presence. I sought God's face. I didn't get the answer I wanted, but I got God, and He was mainly displaying Himself through the finger known as Seth Terrell. And you don't know, so I want to end by just challenging you believers in here. You don't know, but that you will be that finger one day in somebody's life, right? So we leave with two applications. One, wait on God. And in that waiting, call on His presence and seek His presence. And two, be active as the church of God to be God's presence in the places you work, in the places you live, in the, in the, in, in the associations and circles that you make in entertainment and hobbies and all those things. Use and maximize those to be the presence of God in that place. Not preachy, not thus saith the Lord in your face, but just there. Just there and standing for who the Lord is and what the Lord brings. Just stand. Just be there. When their world falls apart, go and sit near to them and just say, I'm right here. And whenever you need me, just come. You, you can talk with me and I'll pray for you and I'll be here for you and I'll serve you. 
I believe that. Psalm 27 is lived out in those two ways at least. In calling on God's presence while we wait and being God's presence for somebody as the temple of God that we are in their day of trouble.